Hello and welcome once again to the BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. And this is episode two for April 2023. Welcome from me, Terry Bennett. And welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems implores us to select better leaders when it comes to voting in the next local and national elections. North Dorset Labour Party's Pat Osborne talks about the need for a clear climate change roadmap. Ken Huggins from the North Dorset Green Party bemoans the environmental record of the current government. And Lady Carnarvon of Highclere Castle talks to me about her latest book, The Earl and the Pharaoh. And I speak to Andrew Livingston about the detail behind his story on raptor persecution. Politics. Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Liberal Democrats writes as follows. On the doorstep, I repeatedly hear support for more pay for doctors, nurses, teachers and public sector workers, for more investment in clean water, in our decaying roads, for social care and in new hospitals. This is almost always swiftly followed by an equally passionate demand for less tax, both local and national. They say a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Is the answer to the balance between taxation and spending one of strong leadership, backing one particular approach to avoid the compromise that creates camels? It's a sad truth that economic theories are only ever right in retrospect, and even then only in their explanation of errors and omissions. It feels a bit like football referees and VAR, and how unpopular is the killjoy that disallows the goal at the height of its passionate acclaim. How often would we prefer the existing dream over prosaic truth? The trouble is, that is how charismatic scoundrels can rise to the top. Never mind the truth, never mind your best interests and follow me for the ride of a lifetime. The inevitable outcome? Well, disappointment, disillusion and a hefty hangover. As we head into the election season that will be with us for the next 12 to 18 months, both here and across the Atlantic, we should look deeply into what is said and the people saying it. We need to think long and hard about our experience in the last 13 years. It's been said of those who run large organisations that once at the top they need to lose the mindset and behaviours that got them there. Looking around the world at dictators and monomaniacs, They all seem to build on the ruthlessness that elevated them, believing they can have their position in perpetuity and ride roughshod over humanity, decency, fairness and truth in the pursuit of their personal visions and vanities. Fortunately, we do have checks and balances. For every power-mad political ref, we have VAR in the shape of a regulator or quality commission. The only buts, perhaps, are that sometimes it appears a regulator has too little power. I give you sewage spills, internet, energy bills, while others can seem to have too much or use their powers in too simplistic a way. Our ultimate recourse is to the independence of the judiciary and the humanity, knowledge and understanding of our elected policymakers, both local and national. However, if we give one faction too much credence for too long, then we start to undermine the inherent strengths of the system. They start believing they, and only they, are right. What matters most, then, is the quality and capability of our chosen representatives. Let's pick the best. Pat Osborne, North Dorset Labour Party, says, In March, tackling climate change was added to the bonfire of Tory failures. And just like Brexit, migration and the economy, this is no trivial matter. 
They were forced to publish their Powering Up Britain strategy after a High Court ruling that their previous plans for reaching net zero by 2050 were the policy equivalent of a scribble on the back of a fag packet. But they once again failed to demonstrate that they had a sufficient grasp on the key issues of renewable energy and decarbonisation. Meanwhile, a report from the Committee on Climate Change, or the CCC, an independent group of experts set up to provide the government with advice on the climate crisis, has indicated that the government has failed to meet any of their targets on adaptation. Indeed, the CCC claimed that the Tories were not taking the matter seriously enough to prevent avoidable loss of life. Barring a few cranks and nimbies, the need to adequately address the climate crisis and to invest in adaptation strategies has become something that, in recent years at least, unites most people across the political spectrum. Most sensible people can also see the potential benefits that renewables offer for reducing the cost of energy and our dependence on foreign powers as providers – the need to provide a clear roadmap for change is obvious to most of us. The need to do so quickly, not least to harness the opportunity of private investment, but ultimately to reduce the impacts of climate catastrophe, is equally obvious. And I've yet to meet a right-minded Tory who would disagree. The real issue here is not that there is no consensus on climate change, it's that we have a Tory government that is showing time and time again that it lacks the capability and competence to deliver for the people of this country. And the longer it remains in power, the more damage it will do. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party says as follows... I understand the desire for politicians to take every opportunity to talk about their achievements in order to persuade voters that they are worth voting for. But politicians have a reputation for being careless with the truth, and too many modern politicians are taking their carelessness to the extreme. It starts with exaggeration and can quickly descend into downright lies. Lies told with a straight face and repeated over and over again, even when challenged. It says something about our political system that you won't be turfed out of the House of Commons for lying, but you will be ejected if you point out that someone has just lied. During his recent budget speech, the Chancellor attempted to take the credit for 90% of the UK's solar power having been installed in the last 13 years. He said, It's this government who fixed the roof while the sun is shining, to loud cheers from the Tory backbenches. Total greenwash tosh. The truth is that solar power infrastructure has progressed in spite of the government rather than because of it, and it's still just a fraction of where it would have been with proper support. After all, 90% of too little is still too little. The Tories pulled the rug out from under the expanding domestic solar panel industry just as it was taking off. They trashed the zero-carbon house-building regulations in 2015 before they could come into effect. They failed to reduce the UK's energy demand by, for example, insulating our notoriously outdated and leaky housing stock. Since 2015, they've given £20 billion more in support to fossil fuel producers than those of renewables. They've blocked onshore wind projects and instead announced more than 100 new oil and gas licences. They've even approved the opening of a new coal mine in Cumbria, claiming that the coal will be used by the UK's steel industry when the truth is it's too high in sulphur and 90% of it will have to be exported. As the climate and environmental crisis grows ever worse, we need honesty and integrity to address it, not greenwash.
On April the 28th, Countess Carnarvon, the Chatelaine of Highclere Castle, will be giving a talk at the exchange in to Newton about her latest book, The Earl and the Pharaoh. Highclere Castle is, of course, the location for the ever-popular Downton Abbey TV series, and it was the home of the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. He was the man famous, along with Howard Carter, for the discovery just over a century ago of the fabulous tomb of the young pharaoh Tutankhamun. Lady Carnarvon's book is a biography of Lord Carnarvon, who died from blood poisoning after being bitten by a mosquito not long after the opening of King Tut's tomb. As I said to Lady Carnarvon, she has very much been able to write the inside story on the Fifth Earl, thanks to the family archive housed in Highclere Castle. Yes, and no one's ever written a book about him, which seems seemed to me so extraordinary. I can't believe it. So it's it's like I don't know it's like a new treasure trail and it was a sort of sense of wonder and reading his handwriting the diaries looking at his life I just hugely enjoyed it and it was the most enormous topic unexpected parts of it as well (laughs) such as I think I didn't expect that he'd be chucked out of Eton frankly after two and a half years so that tickled me I suppose and um I think putting together and building his character, following his journey through life round the different corners was was absolutely fascinating. And it's not nothing runs in a straight line. And I suppose his life above all really surprised me with the corners and nooks and crannies, if you like, that I found from from following it. So you very much got to know the man, the person behind this amazing discovery. I hope so. And, you know, it's, um, I don't know, from, I also, he was also partly an invalid for much of his life. So, and yet that never stopped him. And he tried never to be held back or give any um, substance to that in order to carry on with his life. And yet he was truly not at all well quite often. So it was many different facets to him. And I think above all, when you're summing someone up, his life was marked by many acts of small kindnesses and in a world today that I think stayed with me through much of my writing. And of course he lived through um, a period in history of immense change didn't he and and the, the, the First World War which of course put paid to the uh, to the actual excavations in the Valley of the Kings and and the accident that you you referred to is uh, the fact that he was an invalid for most of his life that was as a result of a car accident wasn't it it was but he also i think had asthma and he smoked so oh, that wouldn't have helped really, <laughs> didn't help. and he obviously his his lungs were not of the strongest and went in and out and he probably didn't help himself but there was perhaps less clear direct knowledge of of cause and effect and he you know lived life to the full he certainly filled every minute with 60 seconds of life hard run or well run whichever way you want to put it and then in 1909 he he did have a unbelievably traumatic car accident he had already been working in Egypt and it nearly kiboshed his return to Egypt but he did return and that was part of the mainstay and he had found this great passion before the car crash for the world of Egyptology and archaeology so Yes. So was it the archives that actually um, told you when 
his love of Egyptology and, and the mysteries of ancient Egypt actually began? I think it was his childhood, his father, his upbringing, his restlessness. And I think throughout the, his, um, his travel, I think it was many pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I think perhaps with some people, when you have more complete records, it's like a jigsaw puzzle and you can do the outside of the puzzle, perhaps, before you start at the inside. And with this particular book and biography, I thought of it as putting together the jigsaw puzzle, not knowing quite what the result was going to be, because I had no outside box cover and I had no framed straight lines either. So in that way, it was a, a really interesting journey of discovery. That's the best metaphor I can think of for explaining it. So it was all an exploration. And you often found misfiled letters or notes or diaries, which then began to have much greater meaning, which you didn't understand where they were, where they fitted in, or they weren't filed or categorized or dated. So it was like it was like my own treasure hunt. <laughs> now, now I, I'm I'm intrigued to know more about the archives for of of Highclere Castle. Do you do you have a, a sort of a, a subterranean vault dedicated to uh, these documents and letters and diaries? No, there's an archive room on the top floor. And there's two monuments rooms on a stone um, staircase heading up, and those monument rooms are off there. Then there's another archive room with more recent archives around another corridor. And then, in a sense, it's just the feeling of trying to look at them like an Aegean stable where it just never ends. I've now created a beautiful room called Orient, which I love. It's coloured the yellow colour of Egyptian sand and that extraordinary, glorious, light-filled world, which is not where I am at the moment. And in there, I've begun to collect together and put everything together from all the different sources towards the fifth Earl and Egyptology. So it's really exciting because I can actually also help other people as well as I begin to bring things together and, you know, collect and put in one place part of a journey of life rather than wonder which box something might be in and then having put it back forgotten where I'd put it which is the, normally the story of my life. <laughs> so so I imagine that by now you having trawled through the archives and found uh, documents and letters and diaries that had been misfiled do, do you would you claim to know the archive extremely well? No I wouldn't at all I think it's I find it mesmerizing in its immensity and the fact that I will never ever be able to get through it all. So in that way, sometimes it makes me feel quite upset because I keep thinking I've missed something and I have, and other times quite excited because I've found something because I have. It's, it's the oddest feeling and it's a part that I love and I never can spend enough time there. And, and Lady Carnarvon, this room that you have um, just described, uh, golden, the golden colour of the Egyptian sands, will you ever open that to the public? I'm, I'm very happy. I haven't completely finished filing everything, <laughs> as in those box on the ground. But I hope it's the place. I've got two desks in there that other people want to do some research. You know, I could also welcome them up there. I'm just conscious of, I think, you know, sharing, collaboration, partnerships, exploring... That's what brings us all together. And I think the Fifth Earl lived through turbulent times, you know, through the First World War, through the 
through the great flu pandemic and you know, perhaps we thought we'd put it all behind us and then through a time of inflation economic challenge of true mental challenge for so many of the men who'd come back from the first world war so he also like us was going through a really terrible time and then in the midst of it found all this discovery so again it's sharing some of his story making that a page turner and then trying to collect together the papers from which I was working so other people can also review or read them. So that's a joy. So open in a small way where it's specifically needed. It's um, quite a journey to get up there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do live in quite a large house, don't you? <laughs> yes, and on the other hand, because I go up there to write, it means that I'm less disturbed than where I am sitting now down here on the, on the ground floor. And it means if I've got a little bit of peace and if somebody really, really needs to come and find me, they have, you know, climbed their way up quite a few flights of stairs and, and they, they must need to see me. And by the time they've collected their breath and sat down, then it's fine. <laughs> I mean, having, having, having climbed up there and, and sitting there surrounded by the archive, did you find that you were able to immerse yourself into, transport yourself as a way to the world of, of Cairo and Egypt a uh, uh, hundred years ago and, and live and breathe as Lord Carnarvon would have done, in a way. I, I hope so, because I was also trying to distill an enormous amount of information to make a book not a um, not an academic book in terms of, of relating different pharaonic histories, but something which you'd want to turn the page to see what happened next. It is quite an intense um, an in, an intense experience writing a book, I think, and I do lose myself in it and I become in totally, totally wrapped up and probably, um, you know, not a brilliant wife to my husband because I'm just so, I'm only reading around the subject, I'm only reading other travellers' experiences, my head is always turning round where I'm unwrapping or wrapping up a paragraph or part of the story. So as I think I've gone on with my writing, you you do try to bring your reader along the journey with you to walk into the Winter Palace, to look up at the huge chandelier or to travel across the Nile in a brightly coloured boat and get out the other side and, crikey, get on a donkey to go along to the Valley of the Kings. So I am trying to bring people around to give the colour of history and the colour of the experience as well as the facts so that's and in, and I thoroughly enjoy that. I always have some classical music on because it kind of makes my head. Um, I don't know what it does to one's head or what it does to my head anyway, but it it does make me relax. Something familiar, and I have a pile of CDs which I choose to put on so I can consciously put something on to. It somehow I can't really explain it, Jenny. Actually, but anyway, my mind well, starts relaxing and I write. It, it would block out any external sounds, wouldn't it? Especially, you know, your husband perhaps coming to knock on the door saying, "Aren't you finished yet?" <laughs> no, he doesn't climb up those three flights of stairs. So that's fine. <laughs> no, he's very patient. He's a wonderful man. He's also passionate about the fifth earl in Egypt, and both of us recognised early in our stewardship of this amazing home that you know that was our story that is the first global media event that is an extraordinary legacy to the world 
without Lord Carnarvon, the tomb of Tutankhamun may not have been discovered. So he was entirely um, um, the, the agent of transformative knowledge. Do you think that he's been given enough credit for his part in the discovery? He's been given no credit for it at all. He's normally written off as the financier or he's given a sidebar, if you like. So part of that is putting him, giving him a larger place in history. And neither he nor Howard Carter were recognised by anyone in this country for what they achieved, which is a little bit sad sometimes. But I just think in any case, he was a humble man. He was a modest man. A celebrity was thrust upon him, if you like. And then he died at the hour of his triumph. So it was an extraordinary life. Only 56 when he died. Very slim, often troubled by your health. But but what a legacy he left us all and what a gentleness he, with which he made his way through the world. And, of course, his death did give rise to that um, story about the curse of the mummy, the curse of King Tut. Um, are you hoping that your book will partly knock that little one on the head? Uh, do you know, I think I'm superstitious. I think many readers may be. So I'm careful of it just to see, you know, um, and... Um, and I don't really, I think most pharaohs cursed anybody who would rob their tombs. All in all, I think every pharaoh's tomb was robbed, so clearly it didn't work very well. And then Tutankhamun's tomb was found as well. So it was part of how they were trying to protect themselves and their, their bodies and shrines as they went to the next world. Whereas I think we sort of think that we go there but without all of our bodily encumbrances, whereas they took everything with them. So whichever way works. But, you know, the Egyptians, I liked their view of that in some ways, because when you went to the next world, it was with colour, it was with food, it was with celebrations. It was a happy journey to the next world, the world of eternity and resurrection. Whereas somehow some of our own journey to that world is a little bit more sombre, a little more stoical, a little bit more of what's taken away from us. Whereas the Egyptians said, yeah, let's go for it. So I quite like the colour, the laughter, the happiness, the embrace that they, um, with which they described the journey to the next world and the next world. So that in itself I find fascinating. And that was something which entirely fascinated the Fifth Earl. And 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 fascinating that amongst all the was it five thousand artifacts found in King Tutankhamun's tomb was three thousand year old food and wine, which must presumably just have crumbled to nothing. Yes, but at least we could find the vestiges of it and realise that they were taking all the fun bits of life, the entertaining, the celebrating with them. You know, I think as, as I say, that compared to the Christianity and the more stoical religion where we leave everything behind. I, I quite like the colour and the warmth and the love and the embrace of it all. So it's quite a good contrast. I totally agree with you there. Now, you, you say that, you, that you've written this latest of your books called The Earl and the Pharaoh for Lord Carnarvon since he died not long after the discovery of, of, of the tomb mm. uh, and had wanted himself to write a book about the fabulous discovery. So do you feel you've done what he wished he could have done? I hope so, to a small extent. I think his book would have been full of more colour than mine and more everyday um, um, credit to those around him than perhaps I was able to, to fill it with. And he probably would have started a bit later 
and presumably ended in later years. So it would have been a different book, but um, I hope it's a part way to telling the story of an, of an extraordinary man and what an extraordinary discovery. And as I said, a very modest man. And in today's world, it's those who shout loudest who often get more of the street credit. And I think often those who are more modest deserve more of the shout outs. I suspect that um, it has always been thus, though, don't you yes, think? Yes, I do. <laughs> but I think in today's world, it's very easy to, to make a loud noise because of the way it is. Um, and those who are more modest are perhaps even more less heard and seen. So now that you uh, have become a bit more um, uh, conversant with just what a treasure trove the Highclere Castle archives uh, are... It, are you? Uh, do you think there's material in there for uh, books on other members of the of the family, the Carnarvon family? Oh, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. Yes. Countess Carnarvon, the Lady of Highclere Castle near Newbury, better known to millions round the world as Downton Abbey, and she'll be at the Exchange in Sturminster Newton on April the twenty eighth. I'm joined again by Andrew Livingston, who's a regular contributor to the BV magazine. Andrew, your story in this month's magazine about raptor persecution is an interesting one and maybe one which not everybody will have latched into. But the story basically is that the the birds at the top of the food chain are protected and are for want of a better word, gobbling up some of the ones further down the, the food chain, and this is causing a bit of angst. Is, is that a fair summary of it? It is a fair summary. The issue that a certain population have with raptors that are at the top of the food chain is that they kill livestock for farmers. And although you don't think of as a, a gamekeeper, which are the main perpetrators of persecuting raptors, although you don't think of them as farmers sometimes, they are farming birds just not to be eaten in a conventional way, they're more farming than to be killed. Whatever your view is on hunting and shooting, there is a slight issue at the moment when you go out into our countryside with the balance of nature, with some animals being protected and some animals not being protected. Let's let's just define the terms here. So by raptors, we're talking of, well, you tell me, buzzards and the likes of, are we? Buzzards, eagles, kites... All the all the, the birds that 10, 15 years ago you would not see in the countryside. And and now, today, if you go for a walk, you will see plenty of buzzards. Admittedly, the, the red kite is is a bit more of a rarer sight, and an eagle is, a, is an even more rarer sight. But as I say, there are a lot of raptors out there. And the prevalence of the, the raptors has come about because they've been protected, as I understand it, for the past 40 years or so by legislation. Exactly. They are now becoming quite decent numbers again, and they are eating the, the, the birds such as pheasants and partridges and ducks and things, which are the traditional game birds. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're out there killing these game birds, which are, are bred specifically for, for shooting during the winter seasons, during the shooting season. And the, the issue is is that gamekeepers would rather they weren't out there eating these birds. And so they take matters into their own hands and kill the raptors, poisoning, shooting or, or trapping. 
There's been some hard evidence of this recently, hasn't there? And I think the RSPB brought a case not that long ago against a gamekeeper in Shaftesbury and he was convicted, wasn't he? And it's it's real rather than just anecdotal. It is a real problem. And also statistics by the RSPB have found that Dorset is one of the worst counties for raptor persecutions. I don't know whether that is whether that's down to the fact that we have quite a lot of shoots around Dorset. But there is also a correlation in the fact that 71% of all raptor persecution in the UK has occurred at the hands of gamekeepers. Okay, and gamekeeping is actually quite big business. As as you say, Dorset's probably one of the the leading counties in that regard, but it's quite commercial, isn't it? Oh, it is extremely commercial. Uh, I mean, my uh, partner's grandfather, in fact, is is a gamekeeper in a very large shoot in the Midlands, and... It is a big, big moneymaker. Some people will see that shooting these animals that are bred is is wrong. And it is starting to look more and more of an archaic sport, if you want to call it a sport. But it still brings in big money to the economy. Okay, I mean, you've talked to, the again, the key people in this area. What's your thought on on how we can take this forward because there's a there's a, an obvious clash here isn't there between those that want to see the raptors protected and the numbers are happily going up but then this is going against the traditional sport of gamekeeping is there any way of squaring that circle well at the moment not within the law uh, the, the laws would have to be adjusted the rsbb have have stated to me that that they would like to see, rather than punishing the gamekeepers, they would suggest to be punishing the estate owners that are paying the gamekeepers to try and deter the raptor persecution. Because what they state at the moment is that gamekeepers aren't doing prison time. They're having their fines paid for them by the estate owners. So there's no real deterrent to stop the persecution. But unfortunately, there has to be a greater conversation soon about our involvement in our countryside ecology, because as soon as we as a population started meddling and getting involved with the ecology, it's meant that any change we have has massive, massive consequences. Because we used to hunt all the raptors, we then raptors went extinct, and now we're not allowed to touch the raptors. It's now gone completely the other way. And... There are too many buzzards out in the countryside. I cannot tell you the last time I saw a hedgehog out walking around. And that is partly down to the fact that buzzards kill them and buzzards eat them. So there's a fine, fine balance that has to be found somewhere where we're not getting involved in the countryside in the wrong ways too much. Indeed, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? We should say here that the National Gamekeepers Organisation has condemned raptor persecution and doesn't have any time for it. So, you know, they're obviously very much on the side of the law here. Well, they've they've got to look whiter than white. But unfortunately, it is something that goes on. And I do believe that the 71% of gamekeepers that have been caught are the, the, the tip of the iceberg. It's, uh, I think it's a bigger problem than we could uh, ever uh, know that is going on. I'm sure it is. Andrew, thank you very much for enlightening us on, on that story as well. We're most grateful. Thank you. No, thank you, Terry. Well, that's about it for the second episode of the April BVM podcast. We hope you found it of interest. Join us again next time for episode three. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.